Thanks, friends, for listening to Nonprofit Lowdown. If you like Nonprofit Lowdown, you will love my free weekly newsletter with resources, fundraising inspiration, and cute dog photos. Did I mention the cute dog photos? Sign up at RiaWong.com. That's R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Adelia Kia, who is the Chief Operations and Development Officer of Serve International. So Adelia and I are going to talk today about how 2020 was their biggest fundraising year ever, how that happened through strategic partnerships and, dare I say, social media, Facebook, Correct. All right, before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself, your personal story, and about Serve International. Well, guys, I am from Kenya, Africa, and I'm just excited. I've been in America for 13 years. The kind of perfect part of this story is growing up, I grew up on the Kenya-South Sudan border in a place called Lokichogio. So in the early 90s, this is an area that saw civil war in South Sudan. And so growing up, I saw hunger, I saw death, I saw kind of all the problems that are caused by civil war. And going to school, I remember seeing the lost boys of South Sudan walking down those mountains. And as a young kid, I thought, man, one day I want to make a difference in their lives. And today I get to do that through an organization called Serve International. We're based here in Atlanta, Georgia. Primarily, we work in East Africa. And about three years ago when I joined the team, it was so amazing for me. We just got off the plane and I was home. I was back home in the community. So now we get to be in that community and do a lot with relief and sustainability. And I'm excited to share more about that. But I've been in America 13 years, worked for different organizations. What you're going to get to hear today is all from people that I've learned. I've had some great mentors who have invested in me. And I've had some great jobs working with a little bit with other organizations in rescuing women out of human trafficking, homelessness. And today I get to work back in my home country to make a difference. That's an amazing story. So were you always in fundraising and development or was this just recently with this organization? No, my background really, I did it was in operations. So I was a chief operating officer in another organization that does an amazing work in downtown Atlanta, Frontier Response, and they're in downtown Atlanta and I got to work with them. And that was my niche. I love systems. I love just to create systems. I love supply chain. I love creating clarity of message. So that's my world. But then I felt it was time to take what I'd learned in America back to Kenya And so one of the opportunities that I received during that time was to be a chief development officer. Like I had never really fundraised before, but I had a story. I tell people my picture was used in the late 80s to fundraise for Land Cruiser. And so I had those kind of stories in my life. What people see as statistics is real life to me. You can see hunger statistics, but for me, it's people that I know. So I was able to take those stories, take my background in operations, and create this new responsibility in fundraising and development. Oh, that's beautiful. All right, Adili, paint the picture for me. So you're in this new role. You started quite recently at Serve, and you know, 2020 hits. It's a global pandemic. So walk me through what was your budget before the pandemic and what was your budget afterwards? So we are a small nonprofit. Uh, prior to this, prior to me coming on the team, we had never raised a million dollars before. And the reason behind that, it was really ran internally. They had some internal people give gifts. So there was no reason for us to expand. 
And so when I came on board, we had a goal. So the first year I came on board, which was 2018, was like, let's just try to raise a million dollars. And we got to $1.1 million. So that was a big celebration. That was my first year in development, learned so much, made a lot of mistakes. Then the next year, which was 2019, we said, okay, let's try to think big here. So we went, try to fundraise. Originally, we were thinking we're going to end up at $1 million. We ended up about $1.3 million. Exciting. Again, we're a, more a startup organization at this point. And then so 2020 hits, and we have all these events planned. We have a lot of partners and a lot of events, and everything starts shutting down. So we get back from Kenya in March, and the lockdowns start happening. And all these places that we had events, concerts, they start calling back saying, hey, Adili, this is not going to be able to happen. And so I see my world literally just cave in and I'm thinking, okay, now it's survival. We might not even raise $300,000 at this point. So we just kept on, we used different strategy, but at the end of 2020 in cash, we ended up with $1.6 million. We also had partnerships where we had other supplies from food from Atlanta Community Food Bank. So in total and fundraising, we brought more than $2 million just in 2020. Okay, let's dig into this because I'm yeah. so curious because that's like some pretty intense growth. So yes. where did the revenue come from? Was it individuals? Were they companies? Were they foundations? Like how did you get to that? Because you raised basically 100% more in 2020 than you did the year before. Yes, we sat down as a team. I got some amazing people on staff. We got Robin and Kimberly. It's all people online today. They just do an amazing job. And so we came together as a team. And once we started seeing the shutdowns happen, we went back to old school operation, SWOT analysis. What's our strength? What's our weakness? What are opportunities? Things like that. And we realized that our strength was our supply chain. And this is where I can get super excited about. So we realized as an, an organization working internationally, our biggest thing is the supply chain. And the supply chain all stops. So COVID happens, lockdowns happen, and the supply chain stops. And I'm going to dive deep into that later on today. But what happened is we started partnering with other organizations that had the funding, that had the operation side, but did not have the ability to do the program. And so we partnered with some amazing, what I consider tier one organizations. These are people who are raising $300 million. And so overnight, because of our strength being a supply chain and me reaching out to people across the board saying, hey, we're not in competition. We see things the same way. We started partnering with tier one organizations across the board and what that ended up looking like is uh, Serve International, which is a very small organization, started partnering with this tier one organization and working as a team to respond to the needs during COVID. And so, and I can dive deep into that, but the biggest funding came from the partnership of other organizations working together for one common goal. So if I could unpack that a little bit, it sounds like the biggest growth was partnering with this bigger organization and they essentially outsourced to you, or it was like a fee for service model where they were able to use your supply chain in order to deliver food. Is that right? Yeah. So when you look at the supply chain for international aid, and this is something I'm passionate about, I'm trying to change. People love me for it. Some people hate me for it, but I'm passionate on changing how we look at uh, aid in Africa. So the supply chain is if there's a problem in Africa, if there's lack of food in Africa, if there's lack of medicine, if there's lack of books for schools, we ship containers of these items from America to Kenya or to Africa. And that's been the supply chain. So what Serving International did, our founder, Steve Kasha and the team, but what we did is that we created a supply chain that is based in Kenya. And so when we have crisis in Kenya, food shortage, we have the ability 
to respond on a local level. And so our supply chain, because it's based in Kenya, when the lockdowns happened, this big tier one organizations had no access to this basic needs. So because the bigger organizations were U.S. based, they didn't have the ability to continue the supply chain. Is that right? Correct. So they had no ability to ship product from Texas, from Florida to Kenya to respond to the needs. So when the lockdown happens, you have to understand as much as COVID was affecting people, hunger was affecting people even more. They had no access to the markets. And so here we go. We have COVID. People are dying from COVID. But also people are dying in big numbers from hunger. And there's no way of disorganizations of getting food, medicine, books to those communities. And so with serving internationally, having the supply chain in Kenya, we said, hey, listen, your strength is you have $300 million. Our strength is that we have the supply chain. We don't need to be the heroes. I think one of the biggest problems with a lot of nonprofits is people trying to be the heroes. We try to protect what we do. It's almost like a competition. And again, this is not everybody but I feel this competition, but we are all on the same team. Our biggest challenge is not that another organization is raising more money or has a better website. We are on the same team. Our biggest problem is that there's civil war, that people are dying from hunger, that women are getting trafficked. Those are the issues. Those are the bad people, if we want to say that. And so we were able to really communicate that with our partners and said, we can come together during this time and hopefully forever and work as a team and you can fund what we do, and we can supply the food to everyone, and then we can collect the data, we can collect the pictures and stories, and we can brand you and send that back information to you where you can use it to your donors and say, listen, COVID is happening, but our partnership has helped us still respond to the issues around the world. I love that. Okay, let's dig into this. So many questions. So when you look at your overall $2 million, how much yes. of the breakdown there is fee-for-service partnerships versus like philanthropic individuals, corporations, foundations? Yeah, so we prior to this, our model was peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. We have a lot of individual donors. We are so thankful so for our community believing in what we do. And that's been the way we fundraise in the past. But when you look at 2020 from what we consider partnerships, we had a significant growth through that, through even companies outside the nonprofit world. We had some partners from companies that don't even have any programs in Kenya that looked at our program and said, we want to partner with you. So we had a significant growth. And when we look at the numbers, we had a 40% growth just from that perspective of other organizations coming together to respond to one need. Got it. So, and now that we're out of COVID, are you continuing these partnerships? That's the beautiful side. So now we are connected to all the CEOs. This are people a year ago would probably be hard for me to reach. These are people that I used to email and probably never hear back from. But because we were able to sell this idea that we can work as a team, we have been in conversations with some of the tier one organization. I consider ourselves a tier five. We got some great people that are doing amazing work. And so we were able to come together as a team and say, hey, after COVID, what does this look like? And so, yes, to answer the question, we are in conversations right now to continue what we're doing. In fact, yesterday, we just got another partnership to respond to some food needs in a place called Narok, it's where they have Maasai community in Kenya-Tanzania border. And because of this partnership, we're able to respond to that need with the same shared goals. Okay, so for those of us who are not in the international IGO food, like what would you consider tier one? Is that like UNICEF, CARE? Like who's tier one in your mind? I think the names, you know, United Nation is tier one. You know, this are like, from my perspective, the 
issue of fundraising is not a big deal. They have the money. Then we got a few tier twos, and this would be my friends from Convoy of Hope, people from Feeding America, people from Feed the Hungry. This is a tier two. They're doing a great job, and this is the organization I've considered tier two. And then tier threes and fours, I feel like we're in the tier five because I'm looking at the number of impact in countries they're in. One of their big organizations, like Feed the Hungry, they're in like 32 countries. We're barely there. We're in seven countries. So there's a lot for us to learn from people who have been doing this for 50 years and even more. So a couple of things I just want to highlight for folks that you were talking about is that you recognize your unique value proposition, which is that you had this locally based supply chain that other people didn't have. You then connected with these other tier one groups that, that would be able to benefit from this. And you created a partnership where they did what they did best, which is the brand and the big time fundraising and use your supply chain and paid you for it in order for you to do what you do best. Is that a good summary? Yeah, that's it. And going back to this African saying, we say, if you want to go fast, go alone. And we realize that we can respond fast just as serve international. But if you want to go far, you got to go together. You got to go with people. And we've really been pushing that like, hey, if we want to make a long-term impact in Africa, we got to stop working in silos. And that goes to the same thing here in the United States. And we've been able to see that kind of partnership. But if we want to make impact on a local level here in America or internationally, I think it's time we dropped this barriers that we have and silos and started working as a team. So that was kind of the result of partnership with other organizations. So there's this concept in you know, systems building called the honest broker, which means kind of like an honest third party broker who yeah. can build people and the relationships. It sounds like you played an honest broker role. I'm curious, I think in fundraising, we can be so territorial about our stuff, right? It's like, don't talk to my donors and you're gonna get my piece of the pie. How were you able to get through those kind of silos? I think the biggest thing is we did our part by making sure that we were not the heroes. And I kind of mentioned that. And what we did is we developed what, and I'm hoping I don't get ever sued for this, but we call it the FedEx model. And the FedEx model is kind of our brand. We sat down and realized that I'm still old school. I buy things on eBay. I know, I know everybody's on Amazon. But the idea is when I go on eBay and I find something I like, I love pens. I collect pens. I collect old books. I got books that are 200 years old. And that's my thing. People buy shoes, I buy books. And so I go to eBay and I'm excited to get a book on the Roman Empire that is 200 years old. And so what I do with that is I'm excited that eBay is a platform that gave me the book. I purchased the book real fast and a week later it's at my house. And the point is I make eBay the hero because eBay gave me the platform to get my book. But what I realized was if you can become FedEx, FedEx is unsung hero on this. And if you're a UPS, Amazon person, I apologize. But for my example, FedEx is a hero here. FedEx is a person that got that book from Montana, California, wherever around the world to my home. They're the guys who are working night and day, will never salute, will never thank them. And they just bring the book and I'll probably never say, see them. And so we realized if we want to continue doing what we do, we got to be the FedEx. And we consider ourselves the black ops of FedEx. We do the hardest job anybody can do. And what that is, is that we can make everybody a hero. We can make your organization a hero. We don't have to have our branding in what we're doing. As long as we partner, if I can make you trust me that I have nothing, I'm for you, I'm for you winning, I think people open up, and for us, it opened up, they opened up their checkbooks for us. 
but originally we were just, we will make sure that all your donors know that you're doing a great job. So that was our concept. Okay. So let me ask you this. So two questions coming up for me. Number one, if other folks are the hero, how are you being able to fundraise for your own operations? Right? Because obviously like the stuff that you do is not free. And then maybe sort of a follow-up question is when you're partnering with these tier one, UNICEF and the UN is obviously much bigger than you are. How do you keep from having the tail wag the dog, so to speak, like how to keep from being subsumed by their agenda? I think the number one thing is that we've decided that we've got to be humble and being humble is we've taken out all the pride because at the end of the day, I think for me, it's more personal. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't really care who does it. If Convoy, UN, Red Cross feeds my people, I think for me, it's personal. So I don't really care about being the hero here. I'm like, at the end of the day, my people are getting food, which are in Kenya. They're getting jobs. And I'll, I'll talk more about that. We created jobs through this program too. And so I'm excited about that. I'm not excited if serving a national, it is, it is well known around the world, but people are still dying of hunger. And I think that's been the mentality in the past. We are so consumed on trying to get our brand out there that we're willing to play with people's lives when people are dying. Who cares who's the hero at this point? Because people are dying. And so that is our concept of how we work. We decided that it doesn't matter. We can be the people who nobody knows and we can still win. To answer your first question, fundraising, how this works. So I'm going to tell you a secret. These big organizations have a lot of money, have a lot of grants. They have more money than they know what to do with. So once you're in the circle, once you're hanging out with the big guys, you're helping them out, you're making them heroes, you're making them the star, guess what they do? They push all the grants, they push all the money your way. Instead of me going through a process of trying to apply, they're like, dude, we have already worked with you, we know what you do, you collect data well, we're just gonna give you this money. And so that's our win. Our win is if we make them win, they will make us win. And I can't tell you it's gonna work every single time. We've had some losses. But at the end of the day, generally speaking, the more we've pushed everybody to the front, the more we have also, our funding has gone to the next level. That is beautiful. Okay, I'm gonna switch tax a little bit because we popped on and you said, and again, this is sort of counterfactual because I always, a little bit cynical when it comes to Facebook fundraisers. I think yes. they often don't bring in the kind of money people think they're gonna bring in and they take a lot of work. But you did a Facebook fundraiser and you said that you raised over $200,000, is that right? Correct. I need to know about the Facebook fundraiser because I'm here to learn. Tell me all the things. So one, I don't want to take full credit. We've got a great team of people. We work as a team and it's beautiful to see when everything comes together. So my background in operation is very helpful because I'm able to see systems and plan and strategize and come up with something that's going to work if everybody plays their part. So to answer your question, a few years ago, I started using Facebook to fundraise and I started this event called the Midnight Walk. And it was pretty much, we were raising money for homelessness. We were going live in the streets of Atlanta, showing what the reality of homelessness. I can tell you about statistics, but it is amazing where you can bring that to life. This is when Facebook Live was just getting started and people had the ability to stay online for 10, 20 minutes. Right now, most people will be on Facebook. When your video starts, you got a five second rule. If they don't buy in five seconds, they're gone. But TikTok, it's one second. So that's a different conversation here. But we were able to raise money. And that idea that I started years ago has grown beyond me. And just yesterday, again, this is now I'm not part of that organization. They have just taken that idea and grown and expanded. Just yesterday, they came out from one of those events and they were able to raise over $90,000 in a matter of about three days. 
And so I learned a lot from Facebook Live, getting started, learning about that. And there's some principles that I love to share with everybody that we have used that have helped us really get to that level. So number one is data, data, data. I can talk about this all day. I love making a passionate plea, but at the end of the day, if you don't have the numbers, you don't have the metrics, I don't care what good sell you have for me. At the end of the day, the data that you're trying to convince me through words has to make sense. And so Facebook has a great platform for analytics, the Facebook analytics. And this information provides an organization like Serving International with the demographics, the people that we are reaching through our Facebook. And so before you get started in anything on social media fundraise, you got to find out who are you really connecting with? And for us, it's Facebook is 60 plus years old. That's our world. And that's our world. So for example, if we post a picture of me carrying a bag of rice or serve food, it doesn't engage people because our demographic is women above the age of 60. If I post a picture of a child, I post a picture of a mom, man, we got, you can go to our Facebook right now. You'll see 200, 300 likes, you'll see shares. And the reason behind that is because we're able to connect with the people we're trying to reach. So I feel the first thing people do, people get this buy into this Facebook thing, but they don't have the data that they need to present to reach the right audience. And so to create that traffic, you have to know the people that you're communicating with. So number one is data. Number two, clarity of message. If you think of charity water, 100% they do is water. There's no question. If I go to some Facebooks for organizations, you see pictures of their last lunch, pictures of their pet dog, whatever it is. That does not clearly communicate to your people what your message is. So for serving a national for years, we did water, we built homes in Africa. We did a lot of things. And so one of the things that we try to streamline to do is food. We wanna be known for food. So when you communicate on social media, as you build up your audience, you have to find one message to communicate. Now that rule changes when you have $20 million in your bank or 50 million. At that point, you can share anything you want. Everybody's all for you. But when you're getting started, yeah, go ahead. All right, sorry. I just want to like contextualize here. So a lot of what you're saying is make, makes sense. And, you know, I teach very similar concepts when it comes yeah. to fundraising. I'm curious, how big is your fundraising or your Facebook group? And did you employ ads to grow your group? Thank you. No, so I run operations. I do development and I also run Facebook. We don't outsource our social media platform. It's all internally done. And for our network, we've built a network around Cherokee County. So we're in Georgia, we're in a county called Cherokee County. You're going to see a lot of our posts. We, see, we say stuff like Cherokee Strong, Cherokee, whatever. And the idea is I wanted to build our community to be excited about serve. I can build all Atlanta, but all Atlanta does not know who we are. So we went to this community and said, hey, no matter what we're doing in the national, we want our community to take pride in the impact we're doing. So to answer that question, our network is not who's on Facebook. Our network is a population of Cherokee County because we've been able to make them our supporters. We've been able to convert them from supporting everybody else, but being a big player in making sure serve becomes successful. And we're in a small community. This is nothing like downtown Atlanta. So I love what you say because it's so similar to a lot of what I teach is that you have yeah. to like call down and niche down and figure out who your people are. Question for you, how did you get people who are in this small county in Georgia 
to yeah. care about feeding people in Africa, especially in the height of the pandemic. Because I, I feel like a lot of people went to, we have a lot of hunger here. Why would I spend my money and donate to Africa? That was probably the hardest part of our job is how do you convert people from Cherokee County to fall in love with people from my community so far away, 8,000 miles away from here, our location. The biggest thing is we created what we call ambassadors. And ambassadors were people that we found in our community that were had the network, had the ability to reach more people. Their social media platforms were lit. And everything they posted was viral in some sense. We got them into buying into our vision. Then we took them to Kenya to see for themselves. And then they came back and they became our ambassadors. They became the people who, when we post and they share a post, they already have a big following and they got the buy-in. They got to see it for themselves. So the biggest point of that is you have to create a community of people who believe in what you're doing, and then they can share that with their people and it just grows from there. Okay, so how many people do you have in your Facebook community currently? So from our Facebook community, we have 30,000 people. I got to explain that. Okay, I got to explain that. All explain that because everyone's like, wait a second, I don't have 30,000 people by Facebook. All right, good. please continue. So good and bad. Well, the great part is that we did a post years ago before I even got to serve. And this post went viral in Colombia, in other countries, and everybody in that country just added serve into their network. So we woke up one morning and we were just like at 20, 30,000 overnight. So some of that is not from our community. When we look at the numbers for people in our community here engaged in our local community, we have about 3,000 people who are in our community engaged. The rest of that, because we're international organization, we have people in Kenya, we have people in Cuba, we have people in Cambodia, Venezuela. So there's other parts of the world that engage with our network. Uh, most times they don't engage with our posts because it doesn't reflect their day-to-day -day life. So if we post on Kenya, Kenyans will get excited. Probably not everybody will, but the Kenyans will get excited. So that's to answer that question. So it's not 30,000, it's more like 3,000. Okay, so walk me through this Facebook fundraiser that raised $200,000 because yes. like start to finish. So walk us through some of the principles, but I'm ready to deep dive on this one. So the, the basic of that is that we started planning early. And I'm going to say this lady, her name is Robin. We came as a team and we came, started planning early in June. And so all through the year, we never asked anybody for a dime. And that goes to communication. I think a lot of times people are just asking, every post is asking. People want to, our concept was, we're going to do such a good job communicating that people will be begging to give us. I know it sounds weird, but Chick-fil-A for years never went online to advertise, but we were all buying Chick-fil-A. And the idea is if you do such a good job with your product, people will want to throw money to your product because they're like, they're so excited. And we didn't have people throw money, but they get, got behind us because they believed in our mission. So when the lockdowns happened, we went to Facebook Live and Facebook Live became our primary way of connecting our people with what's going on. So we had our masks, we had our gloves, we, we did all that, but we were still helping people in a local community in Kenya, around the world. And we brought this live audience. It's, it was almost a movie because people in their homes just sit on the couch doing nothing. And we told them, hey, at 11 a.m., we're going live from Kenya. And people had nothing to do. After week three, people were bored. Netflix was done. You had nothing else to watch. And so we became a Netflix of some sort. We started producing videos from our American content and Kenyan content. And we just made sure that our community, especially in Cherokee County, had all this. So in June, we started this idea on trying to make sure that everybody in our community knows, which is brand awareness. So we created brand awareness starting June. 
And just to kind of fast forward to about August, we put all the needs that we had into what more of a Christmas tree. And we had all this need saying, hey, here are the, all the issues. One of the issues was a Land Cruiser. I needed an $80,000 Land Cruiser. And I honestly did not think nobody's going to give to that. And so we brought out our list and we got everybody engaged and started using this platform. So every day we updated the platform. If you gave, we called you, we thanked you. Everybody got a handwritten letter. You do a good job talking about this. I'm not going to dive deep into the development side. I've heard most of your podcasts. You do a great job doing that. But we connected with every person. If you gave $5, I'm going to test you. If you give $5 to serve, you're going to get a handwritten letter thanking you. And it's not something that we're just writing. It's specifically for you. So we used all these tools to personalize our approach and update all our individuals on what we needed. And through that program, I got the $80,000 Land Cruiser fundraised and I got that check right before Christmas of 2020. Okay, so I'm just going to unpack a bunch of stuff here because I'm really curious. So you started the brand building, if you will, in June. When did you put up your wish list, so to speak? In August. So you put it up in August. And so from between August and December, you were able to raise $200,000 on Facebook. Initially, it was really in December. So in August, as we put it out, we didn't push it. We didn't force it. We were getting people aware. Here's some some things coming, especially our board. We got them to know that here are some things we'll be fundraising about. So, hey, if you're going to be spending money on Black Friday, we want you to know here are some things we'll be asking to give to. So the idea was not to push it all at once, was to get people prepared to give. And so of the $200,000, did it come from your Facebook fans or Facebook people, or were there other donors who you pushed towards the Facebook fundraiser? It all came from our Facebook. So our Facebook, we posted we had our brand ambassadors, people like Zip and Stephanie. They took this post. They posted it on their personal Facebook pages. People got to see the tree, got to see what our needs are. We already had created some excitement behind that. They kept on sharing it and sharing it. And eventually money started coming in straight from Facebook. And also we had people like, if you're going to give $80,000. You don't want to do that through Facebook. So they wrote checks from seeing it on Facebook. So that was kind of the primary is our ambassadors really ran with this. We didn't give them any other job. We only asked them, we want this post to go viral. And they made sure that happened. And these ambassadors, just to clarify, these are people who had big followings that were excited about the work that you do. Correct. And they've been to Kenya, so they know it. They feel it. They know the pain. They know uh, the children there. So, yes, that's primary it. All right, let's dive deep into the donations because, as yes. you know, I like the numbers. So, were yes. they how many donors did you have from this Facebook? And, like, what was the average donation that came in? I think when we looked at it, we had a donations, I think it was an average of about $200. And I could probably be wrong. I do not have that data in front of me right now, but it was about $200. And what happened is that we had so many people just jump in and want to give to something individually. So the tree had every kind of item you could think of. And so they just went in and said, I'm going to purchase this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy solar system. And so we had people giving to individual things on that tree. And I think the average is about $200. And so would you say the vast majority of donors that you got from this campaign were people that you hadn't known before, hadn't had any contact, or were they people that were already in your community in some way? They're all the people in our community who had got excited through the brand awareness throughout the year. And again, like I said, we did not ask anything till this last moment. So these are people that were getting our newsletters, getting our handwritten letters, and they were just ready to give. So it was all our community. 
Yeah. And so what's the size of your mailing list? Because I'm curious about that too. Because I'm just trying to figure out how you get to $200,000 with small dollar donors. You just have a, have a lot of small dollar donors. No, I want to correct that. So yes, we did have small donors, but we also had some big chunks, like the $80,000. So that was one person. That was not a community. That was one person. So I want to clarify that. But to answer your question, so we kind of did it the other way around. Everybody is doing email list and we are trying to grow that. If you, I love to learn how to do that. Like I said, development is not my approach. I'm an operation guy. And I know other organizations really put a lot of effort in emails. It's great. It works. But we started thinking about the future. When you think of the fact that Facebook has 2.7 billion people online active and TikTok has 3 billion people online active, we started thinking, I can try to catch up with emails. I can try to get emails. But at this point, the next generation of givers will be engaging through Facebook. So instead of us growing our email numbers, which we are trying, we're not great at, I'd love to learn for it. If anybody's watching this, send me some information. What we did is that we engaged our social media platform. So we mainly just use our social media and sharing the stories to other individuals to grade that number. So our mailing list, just to answer your question correctly, our mailing list right now is at about 3,000 for our emails. Got it. All right, this is really fascinating, but I'm going to open it yes. up to questions because you and I can talk for hours. So question yes. coming in. We hockey? Jump in this, ask your question. I know Adidi from Kenya. I've met him. I think I met him a few years ago when he came in. I think just about when he was starting this project. And my question is, do you think a startup organization in Kenya would be able to penetrate the fundraising market globally? And what would be the starting point? Like exactly where do you start? Would you want to partner with these organizations? Thank you. Great question. And it's good to see you all the way from Kenya. I know there's a seven hour difference. So I appreciate you taking the time to be on today. And hopefully I'll be seeing you soon when I get to Kenya. To answer your question, I'm going to tell you something that is not out in public yet, but a lot of the United Nations and grants from USAID are about to change. If you're a big organization, you already know this, that they're going to start giving directly to nonprofit NGOs that are based in the country. So they're going to start giving grants to organizations based in that country, not organizations based in America working in those countries. So this is going to be a big change. So for people in fundraising and development, we have to be creative. And so one of the creative things SURF has done is that we have a local presence in Kenya. We have a local license in Kenya for NGO. But to answer your question, there's going to be a lot of grants in the next couple of months that will be for nonprofits started in Kenya for Kenya. That's good information. You're quite the uh, man in the know. Okay, got a question coming from Deborah. Deborah, do you want to ask? Sure. So my question is, I heard the strategy of here's our wish list that did individual donors give to general operating funds or staffing. And I asked because I'm in youth organizing. So our money goes predominantly towards paying people well, as opposed to material items. Thank you for that question. That's a question I think everybody in development, you always ask, because it's easier sometimes to raise for programs and for operation. Is that correct? Was that the question? Yeah, I think the question was, yeah. like, how did you raise for general ops and for salary? Because it sounds like your Christmas tree was a lot of like material stuff that you needed. Great. So what that looked like for us is now I'm going to go back to the partnerships. The partnerships, the question they ask is, how much is your operations? How much do we need to give you to get us the data we need, the pictures we need, the stories we need. And the honest truth is, sir, compared to this tier one organizations, our operation budget is so small because 
we're not at the capacity of the United Nations in terms of funding. So the numbers that I gave them, they were almost like, I had organizations that said, I'll give you more. We gave them our number for operations, the supply chain delivery, and they said, you guys cannot survive on this. We got to give you more. Now, we pay our people well in Kenya. I always want to pay everybody we work with really good. I'm not of the concept that you're nonprofit, so we should take advantage of you. But at the end of the day, our operating budget came from the partnerships we had with tier one organizations that we presented our books, we presented everything, and they were able to cover the cost for that. So just to clarify, it sounds like your overhead costs, I hate that word, but let's just say that, quote unquote, overhead costs and operating costs were covered by your fee-for-service partnerships, not the individual donors, because it sounds like your individual donors were funding specific items. Is that correct? Correct. They funded the programs outside the partnerships that we had with our tier one organizations. Got it. So you were able to bake in your operating costs into your partnership fee. Correct. Got it. Okay. So if our program, though, also is very much staff heavy, it's like people calling people, it's people knocking on doors, but the cost of a flyer, the cost of food for an event is pretty negligible. Yeah. So that's a really good question, Deborah. So I don't want to answer for you, Adili, but the the way that I would tackle it is when you're creating your program budget, you bake Mm -hmm. salary into service delivery cost. So you're not asking for just like the cost of paper for the flyer, you're actually creating that as like a unit cost. So as an example, like in order to get this outcome, it is this amount of money and the unit amount of money takes into account salaries, overhead, administration, operating, and materials. Correct. Correct. That's the way we do it. And I'd love to get into another, because of time, I'm not going to jump into this, but through that process, the exciting part of our supply chain is that we create jobs in Kenya. So we were able to create jobs for widows in Africa. And that was a selling point for a lot of organizations that do food is that we're not just dumping food in Africa, we're creating jobs. So apart from the fact that supply chain is strong, we also had the fact that we're providing jobs. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. Question coming in from Wanda. Sure. So I'm really curious about how you selected the ambassadors, the process that you used. Was it just solely based on the number of followers? Is it, did you do an interview process? Was it identifying areas of their expertise? And how did you know that you had a trusted ambassador to continue your messaging? Great question, great question. So one of the biggest things that we wanted to look at is do we share the same values? Because everything else can change. We might not agree on a lot of things, but as long as our values are shared, we can work together. And that goes for the ambassador, that goes for the big organizations that we partner with, as long as we share the same values, which is we really care about the people we serve. And so the ambassadors that we have, prior to us even reaching out, we did notice that they cared about the community, they cared about people. This were not just Instagram celebrities who are cool and trying to take pictures of their nice shoes. This were people who are trying to get the community engaged in making a difference. Two of them are on our board now. And so that was easier for us. So Back it up, back it up. How did you even identify these people, right? Because I think part of the issue is, yes, values alignment, but you have to even know who they are in the universe. So how did you do that? I wish I had a step-by-step process because I'm an ops guy. I should have one. But the reality of it, being honest, not to try to make up something or try to sound smart, 
They were just people in our community that were making a difference. They're already engaged with other programs in the community. And we just realized we have an opportunity to give them something that they can run with. And so whenever it came down now to becoming a board member, we looked at the three W's, wisdom, wealth, and, and work. And we realized that they provide all three of those. And so we moved them from just ambassadors into board members after they delivered significantly on our fundraising. So I wish I had a better answer, but that's kind of how we just rolled with that. Got it. And so just to be clear, and I want everyone to hear this, you yeah. had them fundraise before they got on the board, correct? Correct. Correct. They're so engaged already. And yes, that was our strategy. Let them do the work, let them engage with us financially, then we'll sign them up. And they're great people, part of our team. Okay. And at what point did you take these ambassadors to Kenya? So we have about five trips a year. Well, prior to COVID, we had about five trips a year. And from different organizations that I worked with, we just take everybody out. Like when we did outreach in Atlanta, we wanted the masses to experience it. But what we did different, and I don't want to take credit for this, it's the team, Steve and the team, we tried to find who the person would consider an ambassador. So in the five trips we did, we didn't take every college student who signed up. We didn't take every business person who signed up. We didn't take person who just wants to go and see giraffes in Africa, because we had people who were like, I want to go to Africa to see giraffes. I'm like, you're not the candidate for this. So we had to say no to a lot of people. And in the nonprofit world, you got to say no against the shiny things. Anybody read Traction knows what I'm talking about. So we had to say no to that. And they were great people, but they didn't have the capability to come back and be a voice for us. Got it. And so you identified people that you thought could really amplify your message and you brought them to Africa to kind of, I'm trying to think of another word other than like imbue them with your message, if you will. And was this a trip that you all paid for or did they pay for it? They paid for it. So they paid for it and we wanted to capture their hearts. And you land there, they see the kids, they're crying. They, we talk about numbers. It's easy to talk about people dying from starvation, but when you see it, it's something different. You can say about people getting trafficked, but when you walk into a door with a lady in a cage, there's something that changes in your heart. And I've seen both of those things that I just mentioned. And so because of that, when they see it and they had the funding, they had the finances, they had the network, they came back and they became a louder voice than we could ever be to share this into their community about how they could make a difference. And did you have any kind of expectations in terms of financial for your ambassadors? Yes, we did. And I'm not good at this because I like to everybody to be happy. Sometimes it's hard having those hard conversations, but my boss is so great at it. Even he just tells you right there and then you're going, but we expect this out of you. And so, yes, there was clear expectations on what was going to be the results of you going. So we, as you got in that plane, you know, if I'm picked by this team, I'll be coming back to be a voice in Arizona, in Atlanta, in my community. And so that was our biggest win is that we had those hard conversations prior to picking our team. And can we ask what was the expectation financially to be an ambassador? Correct. So it's $5,000. That's the minimum. We have a lot of them that do way more than that, but the minimum is $5,000. We also ask you to be active and volunteer in writing letters because every time we give people to give, we have to write handwritten letters. So we engage you year round. It's not a one-time engagement. We keep you busy. We start and we finish. So when you're coming in to be a part of our ambassador team, you know you started this time, it's going to end this time, which is really good because they give 100 and they know that they're going to have a time to take a break, which is very important. 
That is so awesome. What a great yeah. idea. So I want all of y'all in the listening to think about an ambassador program where you put an actual number that people need to raise in order yes. to be an ambassador. Ideally, we uh, could go on forever, but we have to end it. Thank you so much for this. I've put your information in the chat for folks who want to connect with you on LinkedIn. Where can people find you if they want to connect? I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Ideally, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I have a Dillingao, which is my public Facebook as N-G-A-O, so a Dillingao. But then also on Facebook, man, I'm family. So if you want to sign up, I'll add you in my Facebook. We can have conversations and we can learn from each other. Like I said, everything that I've talked about is from other people. So I'm willing to listen and learn from you. So if you got anything you want to educate me with, please send it my way. Awesome. And you know, if anyone out there listening want to talk about building your email list, hit this guy up. Yes. Ideally, thank you so much. This has been so fun. Thanks to everyone for listening. Have a great week.